I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me in Acts chapter 4. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 23, and we're going to see the church at prayer. We should not find it surprising that we find the church at prayer. Verse 23, if you remember last time we met, we had the first round of persecution to the church, and Peter and John answered whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, than, than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And then you still got this lame man who was born and for 40 years could not walk. But after he met Jesus, of course he could walk. He was transformed, transformed by the word and power of Christ. And then, of course, you've got the response of the religious elite to bring persecution upon the church. And so when you get to verse 23... Here's a response of the people of God to the persecution and to the events taking place. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, we might find this surprising, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I find it interesting that the text says, when they were released, they went back, the ESV says, to their friends. But the actual literal translation is, they went to their own. The NAS says, companions. It puts that in italics because the translation is somewhat added to explain what it means to come back to your own. But really, it's an idiom for your clan or your family. So note how early in the book of Acts we see this living life together under the word of God. And that's what the church is, right? We're a family. We return to our own. We are friends But the fact of the matter is, that word own, when you come to this church and the body of believers, they're here, brothers and sisters, you're coming to your own because we all belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they saw themselves this way. And the text says they come back with a report. And here are these two men standing before, two men, Peter and John, and a lame man. And they're coming back and they're reporting to their own what takes place 
They've been before the, the highest authorities in all the land. And they come back and they give this report. And they've given irrefutable evidence of who Christ is and His glorious resurrection. Peter's been proclaiming that to the people. He's been propagating the gospel as he was told to do by the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, remember, they're kind of like hillbillies, right? They're not Jerusalemites. They're from Galilee. And remember what Jesus said. You're going to be delivered before these rulers. But don't worry and fret about what you're going to say. In that hour, the Holy Spirit of God will tell you what to say. And they've done that. And now they're back reporting it to their own. And God is fulfilling His word and will in them. And then what do they do? When they hear the report, Peter and John gives this report to the people. And what do they do? Well, they write a letter to their congressman about religious discrimination. Is that what they do? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, they pray to the God of heaven. That's their response. The passage says they lifted their voices to God and said. Now, there's a definitive emphasis upon prayer at this point in the book of Acts. But there's been other emphasis upon it. And think, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? Luke is volume 1, Acts volume 2. Luke has more of an emphasis on the prayer life of Jesus than any other gospel writer. That's not an accident. So they raise their voices. The ESV translates voices in the plural. But it is actually singular in the original language. So that's important for us to note because there's an emphasis upon corporate prayer and unity. But only actually in this text. The best way to see it is that they're in the assembly but only one person may stand publicly and pray. That's why it's so important for you not to drift off and glaze over when somebody stands up and begins to pray. For some of us, when somebody prays publicly, uh, your mind drifts over to the roast that's in the crock pot at home, ready for you to eat when you get home, right? And you're thinking, I'll oh, just get this prayer over with. Folks, that's not the way corporate prayer worked in the New Testament one voice may be lifted to actually pray, but they're all in unity, following along with this individual's prayer and worshiping the Lord and praying to Him. What an awesome thing. This one individual is simply corporately, he is lifting up his voice, he is, but corporately as a body, they're all lifting up their voices through one, and it shows the unity in the body of Christ. That's why it's important for us to listen along when other people pray and agree with their prayers as they pray to the Lord God. Now, the question is, what did they pray? This thing is blocking my view. I can't get eye contact with some of you that I really want to see, right? <laughs> but we're going to talk about the church at prayer. The question is, what did they pray? You have your outline in front of you. Two aspects of their praying I'm going to give you, and then I'm going to give you an application, okay? First, acknowledge God for who He is. Is that not how they prayed? This is going to be a simple lesson on prayer, but profound enough for us to remember everything I say. It's important. It really is. So acknowledge God for who He is, and notice what they do. Tracking through the text, they lifted up their voice to the Lord, or He lifted up His voice, or one individual did, but corporately as a body. And first, they say, Sovereign Lord. They acknowledge him for who he is. Now, it's interesting that this Greek word is despot. Now, 
that's rarely used in our day as a, as a positive word. You don't hear somebody say, he was a loving despot. Do you? That despotic reign or uh, despotism, that's not a good thing in our day. But you can't use a word today and think it means the same thing that it meant when it was given in this particular context. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And you've got to find out what it means in its, in its context. And so that word was actually, is actually used two other times, 2 Timothy 2.21 and Luke 2.29. As a matter of fact, it's used in reference to Christ more than it is to God the Father. But it would be a fallacy for us to think that it means what it means today in our understanding. In the first century, the meaning was simply sovereign Lord. He is sovereign. It means he is absolute ruler and master. Now, catch this, folks. They've just been persecuted for preaching the gospel. Your prayer life should deal with situational circumstances. You're in a situation. You're in a circumstance. And what you need to pray to God when you're under persecution is that, God, you rule. You are sovereign. You're not always sovereign over us and over this time of persecution. But you're sovereign over the ones who are persecuting us. And so they acknowledge him that way. You are a ruler with unchangeable power. Is that relevant for these early disciples as they're praying? When they address him as sovereign Lord, they know that these supposed Israelites who have put themselves up as little gods, and they think they control all things, and that they run the temple, and they control Uh, the religiosity of that day, it was really good for the people of God to know in their heart that there's only one ruler. There's only one sovereign God. There's only one that's absolutely in control. And He is defined as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We only have one God, monotheistic, of course. But yet He has revealed Himself and does reveal Himself in all of His power, in His personhood. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, in our praying, we acknowledge Him first for who He is, folks. He is sovereign God, our Master and Lord, with unrivaled power and strength. No matter what you're going going through in your life, our God is sovereign. Here's the second thing. Did you notice it? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So, we acknowledge Him as sovereign Lord, but also God of creation. He's the sovereign Lord, but He's also the absolute Creator. God actually made the Sanhedrin that Peter and John stand before. He actually created them. They would not have had life without Him. Now, if you noticed this in the quotes, uh, it is, the text of Scripture is going to say, Why did the Gentiles rage? In your Bible, that should be in quotations. Why? Because, again, we're playing Old Testament Name that tune, right? Again, you can't understand Acts without understanding the Old Testament. And so, this is a a direct quote. There are places where it's given other than Psalm 2, which is Psalm 146, Isaiah 37, Exodus 20, and Nehemiah 9. But the primary reason for the quotes is to remind us of what Psalm 2 says. Think about this. In our praying, we should think about our God and His attributes. You need to know something about who He, who he is when you're praying. He is absolute ruler. 
But he's also the God of creation. And they're making their petitions. And they're using titles to describe to them God's awesome power and who he is. And folks, that's so important. That's better than the now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers at night. Right? God teaches us through his word what kind of praying should be at the top of our minds when we come to him in prayer. And by all means, we need to acknowledge our God for who he is. And they realize that God ruled the world. And he also ruled the threats of the Sanhedrin. And if he wanted to, he could overrule them. Right? So God is acknowledged as sovereign ruler, absolute creator, and now the God, here's another one, of the scriptures. And that's where the quotation comes in. Psalm 2. So think about this. In your praying, God, you are absolutely sovereign. You are the God of creation, and you are the God of the scriptures. Aren't you thankful that God has spoken? Now think about inspiration here. You, we believe that all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished. Well, check this out. The Bible says that David, your servant, wrote by the Holy Spirit. That's why we can say this is. It doesn't contain words about God. It is God's Word given to us. How? Well, it was given to David by the Holy Spirit of God, and he wrote it down. God doesn't overcome our personalities in the writing, of course, or to these writers. With over 40 different writers throughout the years that they wrote the text of Scripture. But what an awesome reminder of the inspiration of Scripture. So it was Psalm 2 that he's referring to. Now again, uh, it's, their praying is relevant to their situation. Now would you flip back to Psalm 2 and let's find out what it says to us. It is actually a coronation psalm. It depicts the rebellion of the nations against the Lord and His Christ. And so here we are in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. Folks, listen to me. They're going to see their situation as the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. Isn't that awesome? They see themselves that day as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Listen to it. Why do the nations rage? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Now, folks, you know this is six or seven hundred, well, more. It's over a thousand years before Christ walked the face of the earth. And here David is speaking of Christ a thousand years before he comes down from heaven. He's the anointed one, right? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Folks, who's the king? Who's the king? All right, where is that fulfilled? Right here in the book of Acts. I've set my king on his holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And here's our mission emphasis throughout our entire church. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Folks, go ahead and write her down. God will have all the nations as his heritage. People from, listen, 
and the ends of the earth will be your possession. God's got the goods to get her done. He will. He will get it accomplished. We just want to get in on the program, right? And so in Acts chapter 4, this is what they see. They, they quote this verse because they're applying it remarkably to their own situation. And they use that servant language of Jesus. And where does that come from? Isaiah 53. The servant song, that's what Peter is referring to. The suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that would suffer yet be exalted. So the apostles are understanding this attack as really an attack against not them, but who? Are y'all tracking with me? This really is an attack against Jesus, not the apostles. Why do the nations rage against your holy servant? So contextually, they're seeing the persecution. Notice how they start praying. They start praying, we know why we're getting persecuted. It's because of the king that you've put on his throne. That's on his holy hill. And of course, they're not writing their congressmen and complaining about persecution. What they are doing is acknowledging that Almighty God is in control. He has placed his servant Jesus on his throne. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And so, Jesus makes it clear. In this world, you will have persecution and tribulation. Jesus made it clear, as they've hated me, they're going to hate you. The early church knew that this was an attack against Christ. When we get to, when we get to Acts 9, you'll see the Apostle Paul saved. And what does Jesus say to him on the road to Damascus? Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Now, folks, when he took the... When he took the uh, bills or laws to be able to get jurisdiction from the Sanhedrin to go persecute the church, it says he's persecuting the people of God. But in actuality, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here's the addition. Now, we can see, yes, Herod persecuted Christ, yes. Pontius Pilate, yes. But Gentiles, Romans, yes. But notice this. It puts in the people... Of God, the, the Israelites, God's chosen people. The Lord puts the Sanhedrin right beside all the Gentiles in this world that the Israelites couldn't stand. And God, and God says to them, you Israelites, if you reject Jesus, you stand right where Gentile rejecting unbelievers stand. And you're going to get the judgment of God upon you. You saw it in Psalms too, right? God is going to come in all of his fury. And so this is the right Christian understanding of Israel. It's not that Israel is going to be fine. And all Israelites are going to go to heaven. Folks, that's bogus. That's not going to happen. They're going to go to heaven the same way you do. By grace, through faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. So if a true, believing Jew, a true Jew that's even monotheistic and believes in one God, if that Jew doesn't receive Jesus as Lord, he stands against God Almighty. He must receive Christ. They may have Abraham's blood coursing through their veins, but if they reject Jesus Christ, they've aligned themselves with the unbelieving world. To reject the lordship of Jesus Christ on your life is to align yourself against God Almighty. Why? Because God has put His Lord on the holy hill. Right? He's exalted Him. So, the exalted, risen Christ. He's not waiting to be king. Ladies and gentlemen, He is king. He's the God of the Scriptures. In verse 28, notice this. When you're praying, acknowledge God for who He is. Listen to this. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is not the only time we've seen that. Remember back in 2.23? Listen to this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Now, notice, folks, the nations, nations are raging against Christ. you got Herod, Pontius Pilate, you've got the Romans, you've got the Israelites fulfilling Psalm 2, but then you've got this verse. All of this took place according to the predetermined plan of Almighty God. Now, how do you wrestle with that? How do you put this together in your mind? God was responsible and is, but so are we. And it's so difficult for us at times to read through that. If you read that and you got confused and bum-fuzzled and had a hard time dealing with it, well, just join my world, right? But here's the interesting thing. Peter's going to do the same thing in Acts chapter 2. You crucified the Lord of glory. Remember, he, he brings that indictment on all of them. You put him on a cross. You crucified him. Romans, yes, you're guilty. Uh, Jews, yes, you're guilty. And then he says, but he was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. God accomplished it in the, fu- in the future, but he, he planned it before time ever began. So here you've got these two things running parallel in all of Scripture. The divine sovereignty of God over all things. Why? Because He's sovereign. And folks, if He's sovereign, He's not only sovereign over all things operating in this world, He's also sovereign over salvation. You can't say God is sovereign and not say He's sovereign over salvation. Right? So He's absolutely sovereign, but what about us? We're all morally culpable. So you've got divine sovereignty on one plane and human responsibility on the other plane. And the Bible never stops. Peter and John don't say, well, God is sovereign, man's responsible. Well, I'm sorry you can't figure out, just believe it. I'm sorry you can't figure that out. No, they hold that tension. And don't be afraid of that tension. God is absolutely sovereign, folks. And it's going to happen exactly the way our God intends for it to happen. And here's the incredible thing. Even when you're wrestling with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that God can even take your enemies and use them for His glory? Because that's what He does here. He takes these enemies and He uses them for His glory. So, this happened. Why? Because of man's sinfulness. But ultimately, it happened because God predetermined it. Psalm 2 would have never been written had that not been the case. God knew God is responsible. God in His Word runs these theological principles on two tracks. The authors of Scripture never conclude a section by saying, well, doesn't make sense, so just believe it anyway. No, we hold them together. Do you know an Old Testament story about this? Joseph in Genesis. Joseph is thrown into his cistern by his own brothers. Cistern by his own brothers. The Malachites come by, pull him up out of there, make him a slave in Egypt. And years and years later, the brothers come down to Egypt needing some food, right? And they don't don't recognize Joseph. And they're wondering, since Pops is dead, that Joseph might finally and forthrightly chop our heads off. But that's not what Joseph does, right? He's the most powerful man, second in command over all of Egypt. And what does, David, what does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Both of those things are true. What they did was evil. But God meant that evil to accomplish his good. Isn't that awesome? That's a living reality of that. And let's move on to verse 29. 
I got to preach fast or you got to listen fast. Which one is it, right? We acknowledge God for who He is in our praying. He is sovereign. Amen. He's the God of creation. He's the God of scriptures. It's going to happen the way our sovereign God aligned it to happen. And in our praying, we need to think like that. God, you are sovereign. You created all things, and you're going to accomplish your purpose. And then notice in verse 29, uh, again, yes, verse 29, they're going to make the prayer more applicational to their moment. Okay, so when, once you acknowledge God for who He is, then here's what your duty is. You need to align your prayers with His purpose. Now, we don't do that too often, do we? This is good preaching no matter who's saying it, right? It is. We acknowledge God for who He is, but then you align your entire life with His Lordship and His purpose in your life. And that's exactly what they're doing. They make this threefold petition. First, they say, God, take note of their threats. Well, Psalm 2 says that when you threaten God, He sits in the heavens and laughs. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? The God who is absolute in power, creative ability, to handle every situation possible, knows all things, is a God who sits in the heavens when people make threats to Him. And He laughs. It is kind of funny to think that we can dictate our God. Or that we can tell Him what He's supposed to do. Or we can try to surmise how God should respond. But these threats, they say to God, they're in your arena, God. These threats are ultimately made to you, so you deal with the threats. Isn't that an awesome prayer? You know, how do we usually respond if we're threatened? Well, we want to lash out. We want to handle, you know, control our own turf and say, how dare you step over my human rights, right? Or my American way of doing things. But in the Bible, we're taught that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. In the Bible, we're taught that you don't return evil for evil, but you return good for evil. You leave unbelieving people in the hands of an awesome God who sits in the heavens and laughs when people try to conspire against Him. In other words, in their praying, they leave God's enemies up to God. Does that make sense? So we're aligning ourselves with His sovereign purpose in our praying, and we're saying, God, take note of their threats. You know this. You said this in Psalm 2. You know the threats are coming, and you help us in this. Secondly, they say, God, give us boldness to speak your word. How many of you have prayed like this lately? Oh, I'm hitting a nerve, aren't I? When's the last time we actually prayed, God, look on their threats, and you take care of it? And now, God, here's a second thing. Would you give me boldness to proclaim your word? Think about this. Why did God save us to begin with? Oh, just to come to first, in quotes, Baptist church. And to sit in a congregation and listen to the pastor up there. He's kind of theatrical sometimes. He's passionate. I'm getting a lot out of this sometimes. But what did God save you for? To make you an ambassador for him. So that you can speak his word with boldness. This is the second time we've seen that Greek word parousia, which means to speak with Courage and confidence and boldness, not worrying about what's going to happen to you. So they did not beg God to keep the threats away. (laughs) They didn't pray like the disciples. Lord, would you mind sending some fire down from heaven and exalt? They didn't ask God to send down fire from heaven and destroy the unbelieving world. 
what do they do? They say, God, continue to do what you've been doing. Give me boldness to preach and teach and proclaim your word. I need to remind you, folks, nothing's ever going to happen in the life of someone unless the word of God does it. Now, I know we've got churches everywhere and the goal is to manipulate the situation. Let's make people as comfortable as we can. Let's do all kind of theatrics. Let's pull other rabbits out of the hat. But folks, when it all comes down to it, no one will ever be saved apart from the Word. Right? Faith cometh by and hearing by the Word. So give us boldness to speak. These guys are not so much concerned for their personal safety, but for the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom. Folks, we need a heavy dose of this. We are so comfortable in our country, in our situation. We think that being a Christian is the fact that God saved you. Now you can just be comfortable. Well, folks, that couldn't be further from the truth. They were more concerned about the kingdom than their own safety. And I have no doubts why God brought me to First Baptist Church. To help you be more concerned about the kingdom than you are your own safety. To help you be more concerned about the word than you are about just affiliating with the church. Folks, all is in vain unless the Holy Spirit and the Word operate together. And unless that happens, we're just meeting for the sake of meeting. And, and everything we do, and I think our staff would agree with this, what we're doing at this church is to encourage you that we only have one purpose in this life, and that's to bring our God glory. And we only have one mission in this world, and that's to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why we are here. Committee meetings, that's all good and fine. We can meet ourselves to death. Committee meeting here. Who should control this? Who should do this? Folks, we are here for one purpose, to glorify our God. We are here for one mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what these people were consumed with. God, look on their threats. Give us boldness to speak your word. That's what we need today in our praying, right? Third petition. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. Please remember that signs and wonders are revelatory illustrations of the redemption that Christ gives. Miracles are not performed willy-nilly. The reason the miracle was performed was to teach the people that Jesus Christ can change lives. Right? And He will change lives. What did Peter say? Don't give the credit to me. I'm telling you now, this lame man is up walking because Jesus Christ changed his life. It was all revelatory so that they would understand that Jesus Christ in his power can change anyone. And they repeatedly say this when they're confronted by the Sanhedrin regarding this particular man. Uh, by the way, it's a pretty awesome opportunity to preach when God is performing things like that, right? I mean, when you've got a lame man who's been lame for 40 years, who God healed his ankle bones and everything else so he can walk... And they know full well they put money in his tin can. And this man's up walking after 40 years. Only God can do that. And then on, what an awesome sermon illustration, right? To open up your sermon when here's a man who's been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says, while they were pleading and making their earnest petitions, the place was shaken. Boy, we could take some of this, couldn't we? The place was shaken. Has this ever happened before? And if it did happen before, what was the purpose? Well, its roots are all the way back again in the Old Testament. And an earthquake is a manifestation of the presence of God. We would call this a theophany. And whether it is Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai or Isaiah 6 when the threshold of the temple was shaking and the pillars of the foundation were moving, it's always a symbol of God's presence and His power. 
He shakes the building in order to let them know that he's there. Right? He's shaking the place. And notice, the text says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, this is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which some denominations erroneously teach. The word clearly in this text is filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, I preached on that a couple Sunday nights ago to remind you what the difference is of those. Okay? So the filling of the Spirit here is a continuous action, continuous event that takes place in the believer's life as they submit themselves in obedience to Christ. So today you may be a believer and not filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you're not obeying God. So, But these people were controlled by the Lord, and they began to speak the word with boldness. And the idea is not that they were preaching to one another with boldness. The idea is that God thrust them forth in the community, and they were sharing the word of God. They were not standing behind a pulpit thumping a Bible. They were saved. They were nominal, normal, born-again believers who were out sharing their faith with others because God gave them boldness to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit living in them. And all God's people said, right? That's what's going on. And there's that word again, parousia, boldness and courage. Now, folks, I would venture to say this may be the greatest prayer meeting that's ever taken place. Now, you might find some prayers in the Bible that you think are better prayers because of theology. But this is pretty awesome when you get persecuted and you acknowledge God for who he is. You align yourself with his purpose and all of a sudden he begins to shake the building you're in. That's pretty awesome. Now, we might have more prayer meetings around here if we'd have some shaking going on by God, right? I mean, we might, we might, but I want to take time to remind you that prayer meeting is important. And I know I came and I inherited a church, and you don't have traditional Wednesday night prayer meeting. And you know what happens sometimes? Church never prays again. Are y'all listening? It can easily slip into the only people that pray is the staff. Once a week on Monday or something. But folks, can I tell you something honestly? God's not going to work unless we pray. Now, He's not bound to our praying to get it accomplished. But look, folks, if we're not in concert, if we're not agreeing with our God and asking Him and seeking Him to do things in this church, folks, we need the lost saved. Amen? We need the saints edified. And equipped for the work of the ministry. And you can't do that just sitting around idly. So there's a seriousness to this. And, and maybe we do need to institute periodically Wednesday night. Wednesday nights when the church of God comes together. And we get on our knees in this place. And we agree with God that he's in control. And we pray about the most important things in the church. Right? We pray about the most important things and ask God to do this in our midst and be serious about what we're asking Him to do. But you know what will happen? I'll put the filler out. I'll say, hey, we're going to pray at the church on Wednesday night. And I'll probably be the only one in here. Right? Well, sometimes that's what happens. You, Wednesday night prayer meeting something you just skip. Man, prayer is boring. Now, I will admit to you that prayer is hard work. That's why most of us don't do it. I mean, it's hard. Your mind wanders and uh, baby Ajax starts screaming over there in the crib and all this other stuff starts happening. You get distracted. I know all that. The enemy does too. Right? 
The enemy knows that. And that's why we need to make a concerted effort. I don't know how we're going to do this, but I need people to pray and encourage me. And let me encourage you. Let's figure out how our church can get back to doing what the Word of God says. And folks, this was a corporate prayer meeting. This wasn't just the staff. This was the whole church. At the Metropolitan Church, you know who preached there for years, Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher that ever lived. And they had a prayer meeting. And he said, we'd have a prayer meeting, and only a few people show up. And Spurgeon, uh, or we say, we have a prayer meeting and have a few people show up. He had thousands show up. And when he first started the traditional prayer meeting, on the first address he gave was called Only a Prayer Meeting. Isn't that interesting? And he said this, We will never see much change for the better in our churches until the prayer meeting occupies a place of higher esteem for all Christians. He said, How can we expect a blessing if we are idle to ask for it? I'm just, you know, it was a rabbit I'm chasing. I know I'm chasing a rabbit. But here's the deal. We need to be a church of prayer. And it starts with your leader. Help me in this. I don't know exactly what we're going to do with this, but we need to be praying as his people and ask God, how can we corporately as a church pray more for your will to be accomplished? How can we pray more for your glory and your mission? You know, here's what will happen. We won't be worried about all the trivial peripheral things on the outside of what's going on in the church. This person snapping about this or snipping about this. Now, we'll be so consumed with our God that we won't have time for anything other than the advancement of the kingdom. And that's what we want as a church. Now, I, oh, son, it's late. Listen, how should we pray? How should we pray? Well, we ought to pray the scriptures, right? You know, we're guilty sometimes of thinking that we know how to pray better than God. He's already told you what to pray. He gave it to you in the Bible. Now, I wish I could preach on this longer, but how should we pray? We ought to pray the scriptures, right? Second thing, we ought to pray for the mission. Ultimately, God put us here for one purpose and saved you for his glory for one purpose. What's that? To bring him glory. And God has put his holy servant on the hill. His name is Jesus. And he will save people from every tribe and tongue in the face of this world. And he's asked us to be involved with that mission. Right? Pray the scriptures. Pray for the mission. Well, here's a good one. We need to pray for miracles. We don't need to be afraid of that. Remember, I told you, they're revelatory illustrations to put the glory toward Jesus and not us. Now, surely, if we saw the place shaking ever so often, uh, we, you know, we have a pretty good platform to give the gospel out, right? But we need to pray that God will perform His hand and His miracles. There were epics of miracles that took place in the Bible, in the area of Elijah and Elisha, Moses before, uh, in, the, in the life of Christ. But folks, for the most part, the way God operated in the past, He's not operating that way today. There's a reason why we're in the epic where you don't see the dead raised. Well, you, you may, but you just don't realize it. You think a doctor's doing it. But the fact of the matter is, God's still, we can't put our God in a box and say, you can't do. Yes, He can. He can do whatever He wants to. So we ought to pray, God, would you perform a miracle in that man's life, even if he's a lost person, so that he will be awakened to the gospel. We ought to pray that God would do what He has to do to get people awakened to the gospel. We ought to pray that way, right? We should. Why? Because we've got a world out there who needs to hear about Jesus. God, would you do this? Let's pray. God, I know the time is late, but Lord, it's your word. 
Lord, and I pray that you would affect change in all of us. God, I, I stand in need of, of regular seasons of refreshment. God, to get my focus back on what's important. And Lord, this is not just a preacher's vision. Lord, this is Acts chapter 4. This is a vision that you want all of your people to have. And God, we have to be patient with one another. Everybody's not going to be uh, where one person is. But God, we want everybody to come along on the journey. Lord, whether we have a, a really dim view a theologically of what we're supposed to be as a church or, or whether we have a healthy view, God, if they're saved, they're your people. And I love each one of them, Lord, in this church body. But Father, I pray you would condition our hearts through your spirit and your word to see what we're here for as a church. God, would you make us a praying church? God, make me a praying pastor. God, would you convict us for not taking prayer seriously? As they lifted their voice to acknowledge you for who you are, to align themselves with your sovereign purpose, and Lord, to be committed to accomplishing your will in our midst. God, would you do that? Father, in the invitation, Lord, maybe there needs to be some confession, repentance on the area of our own individual praying. I know that most of it ends up being, God, I need this, or I need that, or help me with this, or help me with that. But we never pray the things that are most important to you. God, forgive us. God, revive our spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.